All right, Isaiah chapter 41. Last week, uh, we embarked on this short little series on fear, called it the power, powerful specter of fear. And um, fear is a very powerful, powerful tool, as we see everywhere evidenced in our world today. How do we grapple with fear that grips our souls? And I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord, I'm talking about the fear of man or the fear of circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether natural or sinful. What do we do when fear overwhelms us? What do you do when fear overwhelms you? Well, Isaiah 41.10 gives us what we need to know about fear. It says, do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I just broke in a little bit on the presence of God. Yahweh's promise of his presence and that it has nothing to do with positive thinking. This isn't pie in the sky type stuff. God tells Israel that they can take courage and dispel their fear because he is their God and he is with them. I mean, we just sang almost every song that we sang talked about God's presence. Now in the context of the outward circumstances that Isaiah was addressing with Israel, things were dire. The people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, had seen the Assyrians come and take their brothers in the northern kingdom into captivity. And now Isaiah is telling them that in the future, the southern kingdom would be overrun by a foreign nation who will bring them into captivity, speaking about Babylon, 100 years forward in the future, but don't think for a minute that they weren't thinking about the Assyrian army, which was still alive and well, and knocking at their doors. God's people at that time of Isaiah's prophecy lived in a constant fear of the Assyrians. But Isaiah's words in 41.10 are really intended for the future captives that would experience captivity in Babylon. And he reminds them that it is the very presence of God which will dispel their fear. Just listen to some of these verses and let them comfort your own heart if you're fearful. Isaiah 41.13 says, I will hold you by your hand. I will help you. That's a promise that God makes. Isaiah 41.14 says, Though you are mere men and much afraid, the Holy One of Israel is the one who will redeem you. Isaiah 43.1-3 Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are passing through such a time as that. Let me, let me just read those verses to you. 43 verses 1-3 through but now, thus says the Lord, your creator, that's important. He identifies himself as creator, uh, meaning he's sovereign over all, over every little thing. 
because he created everything. O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. You're my possession. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. A number of things flood into my mind as I read those verses, um, not the least of Daniel's three friends. Do you think maybe they were hanging on to Isaiah's words? <laughs> and which he proved true? And I was just thinking of all the songs that we sang about going through the waters and the deep times and the rivers, you know. Um, what's the worst that can happen to us on this earth, right? We die. If we're God's children, we go immediately into the presence of Christ. When we think of our sisters and our brothers over in Afghanistan, we need to remember that because many will be called to die. It's just a given. We need to pray for their courage in the face of death so that they will be a testimony that they will die well. And that those who are watching who do not know the Lord will see that and that it will so affect them that they will want to find out how they could die like that because that is a testimony of a martyr. The question I have for you is, is the fear of or the promise of God enough? Is it enough? Matthew 18, 20 says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, some people would say, well, Lynette, you're, you're in Isaiah, man. That was all for Israel. I don't know how many hyper-dispensationalists we have here, but there are such things as principles, okay? So I just ran to the New Testament so you can see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says in Matthew 18, 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down, relax my hold on you, assuredly not. That's the Amplified Bible's version of that. Because the du double negative which is used in that verse is the strongest possible way to state a negative in the Greek. He is not going anywhere. We need to arm ourselves with that truth. We do not know what's coming down the pike, but you have to almost be brain dead to not think it might get pretty, pretty tough. Will God's promise be good enough? King David's words in his last song are a wonderful testimony to how the faithfulness of God's promise to him sustained him throughout his life. In 2 Samuel 23, we see that he was gripped by the promise of God and therefore could rest fully within the embrace of Yahweh's promise to him. He says, Truly, 
Is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me. This is the last song that he, he wrote. And ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? He stood on the promise of God. Now many disallow that kind of comfort and strength because they simply don't believe. It's the truth. And even as James reminds us, whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So unbelief prevents us from the blessing and comfort of the presence of God Typically, because we will not. Because we will not. And it was so with King Hezekiah when he refused to believe the word of the Lord as it came through Isaiah. Isaiah told him, don't worry. Sennacherib's not going to get us. Now, Sennacherib was circling the city of Jerusalem when Isaiah was telling him not to worry. And Hezekiah had a hard time believing the prophet's words. But Isaiah 30, verse 1, tells us God summed up his unbelief. And Isaiah 30, 15, says, In repentance and rest you will be saved, Hezekiah. In quietness and trust is your strength. But, but, you were not willing. Okay, now the truth of the matter is, God kept to his word, But Hezekiah didn't have that comfort and peace because he was much afraid that Sennacherib was going to take down the city. Even though God told him through the prophet, he's not going to do that. God says, you would not. You were unwilling to believe in me. And so you were not spared that anxiety. Anxiety, I mean a foreign army besieging the city. He was not able to enjoy that. The presence of God was Joseph's success, right? In Genesis 39, we read that God was with Joseph, and so Potiphar gave him the best place in his house. After that failed, he went to jail for a trumped-up charge, and the chief jailer favored him because God was with him. And then the chief cupbearer, yes, after some time, promoted Joseph and got Joseph promoted to Pharaoh. And finally, Pharaoh himself elevated Joseph to the second in the land, most powerful man, because God was with Joseph. Moses declared to the Israelites at the Red Sea, where they were boxed in, if you remember the story, do not fear. That's what he told them. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And he brought the sea on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and took them out. And just what he said, you will never see them again. Now I wonder how many Israelites believed God. 
through the voice of Moses when he said, do not fear. I'm sure many did, but I'm sure many didn't. And they robbed themselves of that comfort and that security that he offered them with his word because they would not believe. Who will you turn to? When fear grips your heart, will you turn to God and believe all that he has promised us in the word, that he is with us? Or will you turn to the world and the false promises that it promotes? Well, that was kind of contained in last week's summary of just that one point that God is with us. So I want to break into the new stuff right now, and let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, (laughs) I don't know how you can be more clear, and yet we confess we are thick. It is so hard for us. God, thank you for the enabling grace that you give us to believe. You did it at the point of our salvation, so you can do it at the point of our fear. We've already experienced it if we have trusted you to redeem us from the wrath of God. So we have experienced trusting you. Oh God, help us to put it at play in our lives as we trust you in the face of fear. In Jesus' name, amen. So his presence is one thing that will dispel our fear. Practicing the presence of God. Secondly, he is our God and not we ourselves, okay? He says in that second clause, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. This shows that the temptation when we're facing fear, and especially for the Israelites, when they were facing subjugation by a foreign army, that the temptation would be to take things into their own hands or to look for a way out through some other means than trusting God. We already talked about Hezekiah, how he trusted the Egyptians, made an alliance with them. God said, that's wrong, don't do that. When faced with a situation or a message that causes fear to rise up in your heart, you are immediately confronted with a choice. And the choice is simple, but it's not easy. What do I mean when you're faced with a message that causes fear? How about, I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer, right? Or you have to get a vaccine or you're going to be terminated from your job. These are, these are times. And, and beloved, don't miss the forest for the trees and think that it doesn't affect you because these kind of binary choices are coming to a town near you real soon. You'll either choose to handle things on your own or you will choose to turn to God. And we're studying what the Bible says about fear and how to deal with fear from Isaiah 41.10 and there it shows the command not to anxiously look about you a clause that represents one Hebrew word, and that word, sa. 
means to pay attention or to have regard for, and in this sense it would be to pay attention or have regard for others around you. They're looking for a way out other than trusting God. They're anxiously looking. How many of us have gone to WebMD or Google or whatever and just typed in COVID response, vaccine mandates, and we're just like, ah, what are we doing? We're looking for direction from Google. Did we forget we're believers? Right? And all you're going to get on Google is fear. Then there is <laughs> a fear monger. They don't let the good stuff on there. They don't let the things that calm us on there. No good stories are on there. Right? It's just all woe and sadness and disaster. Be careful, beloved. Be careful. You see, they were advised by Isaiah, God through Isaiah, to not look at one another in dismay or take things into their own hands. As Proverbs 3.5 puts it, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean to your own understanding. Do you know how, how fundamental that truth is? Don't lean to your own understanding. But do you know how many times we break that on a daily basis? Fear will often drive a person to frantically search around to find a solution to whatever is causing the fear. It is human nature, not divine nature, and not the Spirit of God that He's placed within us, nature. It's human nature. And we have sin that has remained. We have sin that dwells within us yet. That's why we need to have these bodies transformed before we can go to heaven. This mortal body, this body of death, sin dwells in it. And it tempts us often. They may turn to the world or the findings of science. Or they may turn to others around them for help. Some will turn to their own past experience as a potential solution to their fear. That too is is bankrupt. But God is very clear in pointing us in the direction that we must go when we have strayed from the truth or have begun to wander about seeking some solution. He says, I am your God. I am your God. Don't make something else your God. That's what Hezekiah did when he made the alliance with with Egypt, and that's why God was so put out with him. The Bible provided a classic example for us of this temptation to turn away, and I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 13. Our dear friend, King Saul, very interesting. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in, um, in Michmash, and the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gabeah of Benjamin. And he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Now, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gabah, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout 
the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. It wasn't really Saul, but... And also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. So Jonathan's little foray made a stench of them to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. All you got to do is look back on what David had, or excuse me, Saul had. And the Philistines had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like sand, which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped near Michmash, east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that there, they, there were, uh, they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, that means they were distressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now he, wanted, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. So here's, here's the setting. You got the Philistines there hot as hornets, and they've amassed this massive army against a small grouping of people that, that Saul had. And Samuel the prophet had told Saul earlier on to go to Gilgal and wait for him, and he would do the burnt offering for uh, Saul. So he gathered his little soldiers. They became odious, and he's waiting. The Israelites were hard-pressed, which means distressed. And in 13.8, Samuel told Saul to wait in Gilgal for seven days. In 10.8, he said that. And so Saul's supposed to be waiting for this sacrifice, which would, at that time, give him power to address his enemies. Samuel had told him that, and Saul, fueled by the people who were scattering due to their fear of the Philistines, and Saul himself, fearing both the Philistines and the people, leaving his side, he offered the burnt offering. I'm king. <laughs> I can do what I want. No, wrong. Saul said in verse 9, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished, I love this, as soon as he finished sinning, Behold, Samuel came, <laughs> busted, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Uh-huh, I'm sure. But Samuel greeted him with, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I forced myself to sin and disobey the word of the Lord and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but, contrast, 
Now your kingdom shall not endure. He lost the kingdom over his disobedience. Why did he disobey? Quite patently true that he was fearful. He did a religious thing by offering the sacrifice, but with his confidence in himself and his self-reliance would never alleviate that fear, and he lost his kingdom over it. And he says, I was afraid because the people were scattering from me. They weren't rallying behind me like they should behind their king. So I'm going to cut a better picture. I'm going to offer a sacrifice, or I'm going to bomb one ISIS-K guy. How about that? He was afraid. That's what motivated him to do this. He was afraid of the Philistines coming upon him. He was afraid of the people not following him. And his fear lost him his kingdom. Trust in God. Don't trust in yourself or others when fear attacks you. Why? Because I am your God, God says. We're terribly determined to keep our our comfort and our safety and health in our own hands rather than entrusting ourselves to God. And doesn't this betray the fact that when you do that, you're showing that you're not trusting God, even though he has wonderfully said, I am your God. Jesus told the people, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. How can we trust in ourselves Or others when God has said, I am your God. So we've got the presence of God that should bolster us up and make us not fear. We've got the fact that he is our God. He declared that clearly. And these truths are to sustain us in the face of fear. And when they should remind us and comfort us. And we should take those things to do those kind of comforting of ourselves and and giving us courage in the face of fear. When we face fear, he is with us. He is ours. But there's more. A third point is we are his. (laughs) He is ours. We are his. This is getting to messing with our identity here a little bit. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's chosen you. The Bible doesn't only teach that that God is our God, but categorically states that we are his possession. This is further assurance and confidence that we do not need to allow fear to reign in our lives. Ephesians 1.14 says something very interesting in the New American Standard. It says, who the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, that be us, those who have believed. To the praise of his glory, hallelujah, amen. The NIV says, until he redeems, or until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And then we also have God reiterating that we are his possession in 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are God's possession. Now we've seen three 
elements that comfort us when we're afraid. Very clear. The presence of God, the fact that He is our God, and thirdly, the fact that we are His people. All those things can be used when you come up against something that's fearful. Fourthly and finally, God works for His people and on His people's behalf. Look at the last portion of Isaiah 41, 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. And we just dealt with that. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Strengthening. What does it mean? Isaiah had just encouraged them with his words in the previous chapter, one that we're all familiar with, Isaiah 40, where he told them that their God, who is present with them and to whom they belong, quote, does not become weary or tired. Don't put your weaknesses on God. He is not like us. He gives strength to the weary, of which we all are weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. And those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles and they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Wow. What a promise. Now Isaiah had shared that with him in chapter 40. Remember, 40 is the cutoff for the the new section. He's encouraging those who will come into captivity under uh, Babylon, but encouraging the people that he was speaking to, too, because that Babylonian captivity was not going to take place for another 100 years. So he's encouraging them, and he tells them, listen, I know you're weary. I know you're tired. When you come under that captivity, you are going to be very much afraid Let me tell you who is on your side. And be encouraged with this. Now, our New Testament equivalent, but better still, is found in Ephesians 3.16 because it says that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. A little shortened form of Isaiah 40. But we have that strength. We're promised that in Christ. So he will strengthen, he says, in the last part of Isaiah 41.10. He will help. In Psalm 118.6, there's a, a pithy little statement reminding us of this truth. It says, Yahweh is our help, just as he was the help of his people of old. It says, Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh is on my side. When you use the term Yahweh, He is the all in all, the altogether lovely one. He is creator of everything that exists. Yahweh. He is the personal God of Israel and our God who has made a covenant with Israel and with us through Jesus Christ. That Yahweh. Yahweh's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If I get in trouble, I want a lawyer that is really, really, really a good lawyer. Why? 
because I want him on my side to advocate for me, right? How about Yahweh? Yahweh is on my side. And unless you think all this Old Testament uh, promises were meant just for Israel and maybe not so much for us, and I'm kind of stretching out here, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> Romans is in the New Testament, in case you didn't know that. So, he'll strengthen, he'll help, he'll uphold with his righteous right hand. It literally means to hold up something, to take the hand. Psalm 145, 14, we get a glimpse of the meaning of Isaiah's words. Remember, all of this is God's answer to fear, people. His reason for his people not to be afraid. Listen to this. Psalm 145.14 says, The Lord sustains, I love that word, all who fall daily and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. That righteous right hand is the same right hand that immediately stretched out when Peter said, Lord, save me. That right hand. And it's available to every single one. I, I don't know if everybody here has really placed their trust in Jesus Christ yet. Maybe you came in and you're visiting today or you're brought by somebody today and, and you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. The Lord's not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. That's what it says not wishing for any to perish, and you will perish if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ. He's not wishing for any to perish, but you will if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. But he, he is desirous of all to come to repentance. You see, it's the kindness of God that will lead you to repentance. Look at all of this kindness that he's pouring out on those of us who have believed, assuring us that we do not need to be afraid ever, people. But to those that have not yet trusted in Christ, you must repent. You must turn away from what you're trusting in. And that would be yourself, basically, or things that you can do for salvation. That's wrong. You need to trust the Savior. Why is he given that name, Savior? So as we've journeyed through these magnificent promises of God to his people through Isaiah, we have to remember it was as they were grappling with this whole idea of Babylonian captivity. And that anticipated, even struck fear into their hearts. And, and Peter addressed another group of God's people in the New Testament, didn't he? And, and he uses strangely familiar words and similar to what we're reading in Isaiah 41.10. You see, the people that Peter was writing to, they, they were distressed with various trials and, and they were being tested by fire of persecution, it says in First Peter. And Peter taught them how to deal with their fear in First Peter 5, 6 through 10. Let's go there real quick. Therefore, humble yourselves, Peter says, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you in his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That perfecting, that confirming and strengthening and establishing doesn't just happen by itself. Because the first verses that I read said you must humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You need to know who you are not and who he is. Okay? So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Confess his sovereignty and your own human weakness to meet whatever is making you afraid. Number two, cast all your anxiety on him. Now this is done as we affirm that he cares for us. And, and this is an intentional act of our will that controls our minds to put the fear that we're having, our anxiety, on him and let him deal with it. We can't bear it. It'll crush us. Thirdly, you need to be alert and not spiritually lethargic. Hey, it isn't good enough just to come to church on Sunday. I'll tell you what, if you ate only once a week, how energetic would you be? You need to be alert and not spiritually lethargic. Prepare for the onslaught of your enemy, the devil. He's a lion who is actually looking around for those who are emaciated by only coming to church on Sunday. (laughs) Is that too direct and blunt? I'm sorry. (laughs) It's true. If you're a weakling, I mean, who, who do the cheetahs get in Africa? When they go after a herd, they go after the one that's lagging behind and tired and, or the little ones, right, that just have no strength. So be alert because you do have an enemy and he's seeking someone to devour. Fourthly, resist the devil. Now, this is an interesting one because <laughs> I, I still I, I can't get the picture out of my mind of Pilgrim walking up that path with two lions. Now, he didn't know that they were tethered or chained when he was approaching them. He had to, in faith, walk right between them. And it was only as he was walking between them that he saw the chains that were holding him so they could not get him. That's faith. The Israelites had to step out with walls of water on either side. You think that didn't take faith? How high were those walls? You ever think about that? That's not a fairy tale. That's the truth. Faith, it's difficult. But we have the power inside of our inner person to exercise that kind of faith. Resist the devil. Stand against the devil and everything he brings against you. Despair, doubt, questioning his motives. The fact that you experience despair does not mean you need to remain in despair. The fact that you become doubtful and you question, you wonder what 
what you're going to do doesn't mean you have to remain there. When you catch yourself there because you're being alert, right? You're in the Word of God. You're fellowshipping with other Christians. When you're alert and you catch yourself, then you cast that anxiety on God. Fifthly, strengthen your faith. Only faith extinguishes the fiery darts of the devil. And faith is strengthened by a steady diet in the Word. So having fulfilled Peter's five directives, God then steps in. It doesn't happen automatically just because God's good and nice and kind, which he is, and loving. He lays out what needs to precede this, but God steps in, and and Peter says, at the proper time, which is God's time. We read this morning, our times are in his hands. He's sovereign. We let that be. He knows. So he steps in at the proper time, a time of his own choosing, not ours, and Peter using language very similar to Isaiah's when he says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. Now that little while is longer for some than it is for others, but it does say that there's a time that we will suffer. No place in the Scripture does it say believers will not suffer. In fact, suffering is one of the greatest uses that God has to bring sanctification about the transforming of our person, our inner person, into the, the uh, image of his dear son, Jesus Christ, from glory to glory. So after you've suffered for a little while, it says the God of all grace who called you in his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Perfect, it means to arrange something properly, like a bone that's broken, like an arm, It means to set the arm so the bones are back together the way they're supposed to. I like to just say he'll fix it. Whatever it is, he'll fix it. Okay? It says it in the Bible. He'll perfect it. Confirm is sterizo, and it means to support or buttress something that's lacking. Think of a tottering wall, and you you get a couple boards, and then you get a couple uh, braces, and you brace that up. That's what confirm means and that's what God will do for you and strengthen is proportionate to the weakness God will meet it with his strength Ephesians 6 10 says be strong in the Lord and the power of his might whatever you come up against is it greater than God no absolutely not And lastly, he will establish to provide a firm foundation. Rooted and grounded is used in Ephesians. That's rooted and grounded in love. That rooted and grounded means foundation. It means established. He will establish you in love. And here, he will establish you. Whatever it was that was making you weak and wobbly through fear, it is now confirmed and established because you have done what he asked you to do. You've humbled yourself. You're casting your care on him and you're following through on what Peter says. So in Isaiah, as in 1 Peter, you must remember that it is God that does the heavy lifting, not us. He is strengthening, helping, upholding, and it's God who perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes. But it is the believer that must believe God for his good gifts. If you're not believing him, don't expect to experience these things. You will remain in your fear. And fear will do everything in its power, and that's a lot, 
to dissuade you from believing God. It'll throw up all sorts of excuses not to believe and trust Him. Thinking with belief and acting with belief is divine. It's given to us of God, but you have got to stretch yourself out on Him. You have got to make the first move. And then He supercharges that with His grace. He enables us. You've got to step into the water. Then the waters will part. Remember the priests at, at uh, Jordan River? It wasn't until they stepped into the water that God parted the waters. What a beautiful picture. Well, it's not the doctor's prescription that heals, okay? You get sick, you go to the doctor. Doctor examines you, he writes you out a prescription. You take the prescription, put it in your pocket, and go home and you'll be all better, right? No. You listen to the prescription, you look at it, you believe the doctor, you go to the pharmacy, you get the medicine, and you take the medicine. Then you might get better. You must act on what God has said. You must take it and make it your own. So many don't do that. In that same way, God has through his word, Isaiah and Peter today, laid out a wonderful prescription for the specter of fear. But unless you take what he has told you today and apply it to your specific fears, you will gain nothing. And if so, you may not blame God. Take him at his word and do away with that fear. Enough fear. Enough fear. We need to be courageous during these days. It'll testify to who God is in the lives of his children. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word and that we can rely upon your word. Thank you for the help that it is to us. And oh God, help us not to cringe in fear with whatever we're facing, whatever it is, because we have you, Yahweh, who has said, you are with us and that you will help us and you will strengthen us and you will hold us by your righteous right hand. Didn't even get into the intimacy of that picture. But when you hold somebody's hand, there's intimacy there. And the God of creation has said, he will uphold us by his righteous right hand. Thank you. Thank you for your care for us as believers. And I pray if anyone has not yet believed here today that they would ask questions so that they too might have this kind of confidence that only believers in this world can experience. For we pray it in Jesus' name.